Our sermon text for today comes from Luke 9, 51 through 10, 24. So hear the word of the Lord. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to him, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and 
revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray. Father, there's a, there's a weight to your word. If we have ears to hear it, please give me grace to preach you with clarity, with conviction. But I pray that I will be forgotten and that we will worship you ours will be centered on you. Pray that you will supernaturally set aside this time as we're at home, as kids are shouting and screaming and various distractions of our houses. Lord, please, in your mercy, set aside this time for your purposes. Pray this in your holy and your beautiful name. Amen. Well, here we are again. Not because of COVID, but because of the purse pipe. But God is sovereign. He knew we'd be here. And so I'm going to have to get used to preaching to a camera. I'll probably just... Anyways, it doesn't matter. Okay, well, the best bosses. The best bosses. So many of us have jobs, or we'll one day have a job, and we will probably have a boss or a supervisor. And um, the best kind of boss is someone who leads by example and character, not just by their title. So if you lead just by your title... Um, you know, if you have a supervisor and, and they're just leading out of the force of their position, well, you're going to obey them because they're your boss and they probably have the ability to fire you, but it may be begrudging. You probably won't love them. Um, and you won't be following them because they're good leaders. But the best bosses are not ones who just lead out of the function of their title, but they're the ones who lead by their own example, by their own leadership, by their own character. Uh, I think of uh, actually Marco's dad, uh, who was a physician for many years. He was um, the chief of uh, pediatric critical care. So he was head of all the pediatric critical care people in his hospital, the doctors, the nurses, the, you know, physical uh, or physician's assistants, all that stuff. And, um, and he, was a good, he was a good boss because he led by example. So when they were setting call schedule, calls a doctor's 24 hours we were at the hospital, <clears throat> he would not pull rank and kind of give himself less and everyone else more. He would equally distribute it. And this is including when he's like 60. Um, and there were times that we were even telling him, like, Dad, you're 60. You don't need to be doing calls as much as a 35-year-old recent fellowship, you know, graduate. You should do less call. You're getting old. And he refused to. Um, and as a result, those who worked in his area, those other uh, critical care pediatricians, really respected him, and it gave him more credibility when there was a lot of call because he was doing what he was asking them to do. He wasn't just sitting at home saying, you guys need to work more, but he was actually pulling his own weight, even to the detriment of his own health. That's what a good boss does. This is what we see with Jesus. Jesus is Lord. 
What that means is that if there's anyone who can lead by function of their title alone, it is Jesus. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He can say, do this, and we're going to do it because he is Lord. But the amazing thing is that he doesn't just lead out of function of his title, but he leads by example. And so in our passage this morning, which is showing us three characteristics of authentic discipleship, he actually leads before us an example in each of these three. And these three, these three characteristics are that authentic discipleship is costly discipleship, it's committed discipleship, and it's joyful discipleship. And again, Jesus leads by example in all three of these areas to show us what it looks like to follow in his footsteps. Now I'm going to give a quick recap because we're actually at a transitional point in our book. I've said that a couple different times, but today we really are. Uh, there's four main sections in Luke. You can break Luke into four sections. There's first the birth narrative, chapters 1 and 2. Uh, so we uh, looked at in, um, what's it called? Uh, not Christmas, but Advent, sorry, Advent a year ago, pre-COVID. So really like 20 years ago in terms of dog years. Um, and then from chapters 3 to 8 is what's called the Galilean ministry. It's just when Jesus is ministering Galilee. That's what we've been in for the last year. And um, that is kind of centered around the central question of, okay, who is Jesus? This morning, we're now moving into the next section, which is called the Perean ministry, because it covers Jesus' ministry in the area of Perea. It's chapters 9 to 19. And the fourth and final section of Luke is his passion and resurrection, chapters 20 to 24. But if you look at verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That is a transition point in the book. From here on out, the cross is, is the background of everything that's happening. Jesus is in his last journey towards Jerusalem, not in the sense of a straight line. It's not like he pulled out his Google Maps and was like, what's well, the fastest route? He's going to do kind of a meandering. He's going to go back up north, back south, back around, everywhere. But the idea is that it is all now, there's, a, there's an end point in sight. It is Jerusalem. They're all moving towards that, where Jesus will die for the sins of humanity. And this next section, it's, it's, it's got some of those beloved and unique stories that are only found in Luke. So like the Good Samaritan is in this section. No, no other gospel has that. The, uh, the story of Zacchaeus, wee little Zacchaeus, um, the story of the, the sinner, or, or sorry, the, the, yeah, the sinner and the Pharisee in the temple. I mean, some of the most beloved and powerful stories are going to be in this section that we'll be looking at next. It's, it's, it's much less miracles. And chapters 3 to 8 is a ton of Jesus' miracles because it's focusing on who is Jesus. This is a lot more teaching. There's going to be 17 parables alone in this passage. We won't look at each one individually. We'll probably lump some together. But the section is going to be um, characterized by just more teaching. And then finally, there's going to be a greater hostility from Jewish leaders as well. But here is Jesus, the sovereign Lord. He knows what's coming ahead. He knows what the cross is going to entail. And it says he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He demonstrates in his own life what costly, committed, and joyful discipleship looks like. And we're going to kind of bring that out more throughout our sermon. So about our first point. What is the first characteristic of, of authentic discipleship is that it is a costly discipleship. Look at verses 57 to 58 of chapter 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Here we have a, a first would-be disciple 
You could, you could think of this disciple as kind of an over-ready disciple. He comes, he's feeling the, 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 the emotion of the moment, and out of, I mean, there's no sense that this is an insincere declaration. It seems very sincere. And there's something very moving about it, that he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, based on what I've seen of you, based on what I've experienced of you, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus cautions him. Sincerity doesn't mean that he's thought through what exactly he's saying. We can be very sincere. And we've probably all experienced that, that, that moment, right? Maybe it was when we became a Christian. Maybe it was at a youth retreat. Maybe it was just a time when God brought renewal. But where we feel that, like Christ would have experienced of you, like I, I'll do anything you want. Just tell me what it is. Like I, I want to serve you with my whole life. We've all experienced this emotion, but Jesus gives us a little bit of caution. Emotion is good. It's, it's, I mean, if, if, we, if we aren't sincere, we're hypocrites. But there needs to be more than just sincerity. There needs to be a thought through counting of the cost. I had a friend in high school, um, a, really more of a classmate. He was um, in a lot of my classes senior year. He was like a committed, agnostic, kind of, you know, progressive humanist. Um, and so oftentimes in classes, we were like the foils against one another. I was a kind of conservative Christian. He was the progressive agnostic. Um, but we had a really good relationship, and I learned he made me think, and I think I made him think, and we had a good relationship. But when we were in middle school, I was at a youth conference, and um, at the, at, you know, it was a two-day conference. At the end of the conference, they did an altar call where you would go forward if you wanted to rededicate your life to Christ. And I have a distinct memory of seeing him. This is a huge conference. There's like a thousand students here from churches all around the area. And I remember seeing him in that crowd going forward uh, to rededicate his life to Christ. And there, I have no reason to think that he wasn't fully sincere in that desire in that moment at that night to commit his life to Jesus. But four years later, he's a committed agnostic. And I'm sure there are many factors in that. I don't know the full story. But perhaps part of it was that he hadn't counted the cost. And especially as I, I remained friends with him into college and he, he ended up coming out as gay, I'm sure part of the factor was that he had not counted the cost towards his own sexuality. And so again, emotions are good, sincerity is good. But Jesus gives us a word of caution. If we want to follow him, we're going to face what he faced. And Jesus faced rejection. The way his Galilean ministry begins in chapter 4, his earthly ministry begins by him going to his own hometown and being run out of town, being rejected. And then here, this next section begins with him being rejected by this Samaritan village. They won't even let him stay in the village. Jesus faced faces rejection. So he tells us would-be disciple, are you ready to face the kind of rejection, the kind of cost that it's going to take to follow me? The, the Bible commentator William Hendrickson puts it really well in this way. He says, in his wandering, this is talking about Jesus, in his wandering from place to place, he for whom there is no room in the inn has no place on which he can figure to spend the night. Judea rejects him, Galilee casts him out. Gadara begs him to leave its district. Samaria refuses him lodging. Earth will not have him. And finally, even heaven forsakes him. What Jesus is telling this would-be disciple is, you know, praise God for your sincerity, but are you willing to count the cost and face the rejection that's going to come if you really want to follow me? I think one thing this tells us is that the call to follow Jesus is not necessarily a call to our best life now, regardless of what some 
pastors or preachers might say. It's a call to count the cost of what will often at times be a hard, a hard thing. Oftentimes when we're trying to uh, um, maybe talk to non-Christian friends or neighbors or loved ones about Christianity, we get in this like frame of mind where we're almost trying to sell Christianity. You know, say, look, it, like, there's great peace in, in the presence of Christ. There's joy, like, there's meaning. That's what we're meant to be. And this is all true stuff. But at the end of the day, following Jesus is, is not about living our best life now. And it will involve hardship. And there will be valleys of doubt and valleys of discouragement and valleys of suffering and anxiety. And at the end of the day, we follow Jesus, not because of the benefits he gives us. We follow him because he's the Lord and because he is the king of kings. And if we follow him just for his benefits, that would be a weak foundation. And when we find ourselves in the valleys, we're not going to know where to turn. But here's the thing. Again, Jesus leads by example. He, he calls us to make sacrifices when we follow him. And, and some of us have made sacrifices, all kinds of sacrifices. Maybe even sacrifices just to be here in Louisville or to be at this church or, or sacrifices we made in our career or, or in the service we've done for this church. And Jesus is not one who stands at a distance as we experience the cost of following him, but he's one who's near and he understands because he's experienced it himself. And when we weep tears of isolation or discouragement or despair, this is what's amazing. Jesus is next to us weeping tears with us because he understands. That's the Lord that we follow. And one day when enough tears have been shed, he's going to wipe them all away with his own hands when our pilgrimage is over. <clears throat> the first characteristic of a authentic discipleship is that it is a costly discipleship. The second characteristic is that it's a committed discipleship. Let's look at verses 59 to 62. To another he said, follow me. <clears throat> but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When you read these verses, you can't help but think, okay, is Jesus being a little bit unrealistic? I think if, I'm, if, I'm, if I invite you over for dinner and you flake on me, and the reason is because you're burying your parent, that's a pretty good reason. Like, I'm not going to be upset at that. I'm like, yes, you should be at your parents' funeral. That's a good thing. Or, or even, like, you know, wanting to go home and say goodbye to their family before they follow Jesus as he sends them out in their ministry. Like, this seems like pretty good. This is pretty reasonable expectations. Like, what's going on? And we'll answer these questions in a minute. But the point is that Jesus is calling his disciples to a commitment and the nature of this commitment, there's two aspects of it in our text. The first is that this is an urgent commitment. Look at verse 2 of chapter 10. As he sends the 72 out, he tells them this. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He uses a farming analogy. 
My first job was working at a, a berry farm. One of my friends, uh, his dad was a farmer. And that was, I mean, it was a berry farm. That was how they made their money. And, and so through uh, working at this farm, through knowing my friend, I got to just see some of the rhythms of farming life, which is very interesting. Farming life goes from the extremes, like no work to do in the winter. I mean, you're basically like finding things to do, repairing stuff you haven't repaired throughout the year. And then summer is just a blitz as you're planting, harvesting, you know, everything. And then especially when, when the berries are ripe, it's like this is go time because you've got two to three weeks when strawberries are ripe, and if you don't pick them, that's money lost. Like that's your income. You have to pick them all. And so when the, when the harvest is ready, it's like you got two or three weeks. You don't got time to spare. You can't. You don't do do-overs. It's not like okay, I'm sick this week. I'll come back next week. It's like this has got to be done now. There's a time period, and it's going to be ending. And then there's nothing else you can do. And Jesus is saying that. That's the image behind this. This is the urgency of a farmer who's looking at the harvest and realizing he doesn't have enough laborers to gather the harvest in. And it's happening, and he's watching like his crops rot in their field because there aren't enough people to actually pick them. Imagine the urgency of that farmer. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's the urgency of the people he's sending out. And the urgency is all through this text. Look at verse 4. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. He's saying, travel light. You're going to have to go fast. It says, don't greet anyone on the way. You don't have time for small talk. Like, there's limited time. The harvest is now. Go out. In verse 10, he says, if they, if they don't receive you, don't try to win them over. Move on. This is limited time. The harvest is still plentiful today. In secular America, it's difficult for us to talk about religion and spirituality. It's awkward. It's like the one taboo subject. Even politics is less awkward than spirituality. And so I think we can fall into this like conviction or this, 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 this thought that, well, because it's awkward to talk about spirituality, that means my neighbors really don't want to hear about Jesus. My coworker really doesn't want to hear about Jesus. They don't have spiritual questions. And this is where we confront our, our, our kind of cultural like, assumptions versus the promise of Jesus. Our cultural assumptions that know they're going to be offended if you try to talk to them about spirituality. They don't want to know. They think you're weird if you talk about it. And then you have the promise of Jesus. The harvest is plentiful. There is a spiritual harvest in your neighborhood, at your workplaces, in this city. If we all have eyes of faith to see it, there is a harvest ready. The problem is not that people aren't interested. The problem, the problem is that there aren't laborers going out into the fields. And so Jesus says in the second half of verse 2, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray that God will send people out. The harvest is ready. There just aren't people willing to work in it. Pray that God in his mercy and his compassion and his sovereignty will send Christians out, not in terms of vocational ministry. We don't need more vocational pastors and missionaries. We need Christians who are in their ordinary lives going to recognize the harvest at their workplaces and their neighborhoods and their families. Pray. I mean, as a church, what are we praying for? Praying for our health and well-being of our members, that's important. Praying that we grow deeper into Christ, that's important, absolutely. But this is what Jesus calls us to pray for. And here's the thing, when we pray this, he answers it. 
And we pray, Lord Jesus, send more people out into your harvest. He answers it. Why? Because it's according to his will. I can promise you that. There's not many answers I can promise you'll get, but this is one that you'll get. But second, if we pray this, and we pray it urgently with all our hearts, we're going to find that we're the ones going out. And that's what Jesus wants. So first, this is an urgent commitment that he calls us to. But second, it's a total commitment. And then in those verses 59 to 62, where Jesus says to the man who wants to bury his father, let the dead bury their own dead. And he says to the one who wants to say goodbye to their family, no. Is no. <laughs> Jesus being unreasonable? Just, you know, what's going on here? Well, there's three considerations when we look at this. And the first is, is, is again, this, there is an urgency here. Jesus isn't playing games when he says the harvest is plentiful. Like, there is a limited time. Jesus is moving to Jerusalem. There's an end date on when he will be crucified and resurrected and ascended. There is an end date to his earthly ministry. The harvest is here. There's an urgency. That's the first consideration. The second consideration is realize that Jesus sees the heart. Like, we just see these two would-be disciples. We don't know what's going on with them, but Jesus knows their hearts. He knows what their temptations are. He knows that maybe one of them is tempted to place his family before Christ. And so for him to go home for a normal person might not be a big deal, but for him it may be a temptation to leave Jesus, and Jesus is more important than our families. He knows, maybe he, we don't know what's going on here, but we know Jesus knows the hearts, and he knows what is best, and he wants what is best for those who follow him. But the third consideration is, is, is and this is the point, is that Jesus requires total commitment from those who would follow him. Total commitment. Following Jesus is not a weekend gig. It's not a, you know, couple hours a day, part-time job. It's a total commitment. Now, we may think this seems a little bit unnecessary or over the top, but we're not phased when other aspects of our life require a total commitment. So you think of, you know, certain types of graduate school. If you want to go to law school, there's, there's going to be a total commitment for three years. That's just the way it works. If you want to pass the bar, if you want to not end up just with a ton of debt and no degree, or if you want to go to medical school, like there, or if you want to be, you know, there are times in your career where it's going to require just a lot of your time. And we're not phased by that. We understand that. We understand a medical student is going to miss family holidays. It's going to miss family gatherings. It's going to change their life. We're not phased by that. But Jesus is the Lord of the universe. I mean, he's not a job. He's not a graduate school. Partial allegiance to Jesus isn't enough. He will have all of us or he will have none of us. That's what he's saying. I'm going to say it again. Jesus is saying here is that he will have all of us or he will have none of us. Now, hear me carefully. I'm not saying like unless we can have perfect allegiance to Jesus, we can't follow him. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that there is an eternal difference between willing to live all of our life for Christ and not being willing to submit part of our life to him. There is an eternal difference between willing to live for Christ, even though we will do so imperfectly, and not being willing to submit our lives to him. Because Jesus speaks to would-be disciples, and he requires urgent and total commitment now, a question I had when I read this is, okay, how is this not a recipe for burnout, right? Like, I think it seems like you live this out, and you're going to be hot for three months, and then you're going to crash and burn. I remember when I was younger, I had a youth leader 
challenged me. He said, Mike, if you, were, if you knew you were going to die in 24 hours, like, how would you live differently? And the point was to give me the sense, like, you know, the urgency of, like, what's eternally important versus temporarily important. But the problem with that question is, like, if I'm, if I'm going to die tomorrow, like, I think for all of us, we'd probably quit our jobs, wouldn't be paying bills, like, I wouldn't be doing any of this stuff, like, the mundane stuff that's necessary but far less important than, like, seeing my family and, you know, talking to neighbors about Christ. And if we lived each day as if it was our last day, like, in a month, we would all be in a very bad place as we're either evicted from our apartments or we're defaulting on our mortgages and we're running out of money because we quit our jobs. And, like, that's not, that's not feasible. And we have to realize that in the context of what Jesus is calling his disciples to, this is a short-term ministry. He is sending them out ahead of him to prepare the way for him to come to Jerusalem. This is a matter of months. So that's part of how we have to understand this, is that this is, not, this is a specific ministry, a specific time-limited ministry that Jesus is calling his disciples to. And at the end of the day, we want 50 years of faithful discipleship, not three months of faithful discipleship. So how do we do that? Well, I think there's two truths that we have to balance. And if we can balance these, it leads to a lifetime of faithful discipleship. And the first is that there is an urgency. The harvest is plentiful. And there is an urgency there. There is a genuine urgency. And if we lose this, we become ingrown, we become apathetic, we become septic in our faith. There's an urgency the second truth you have to balance with that is that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He is sovereign. And so he will call to himself whom he wants to. And us failing in our faithfulness is not going to change that. And when we can balance those two, what that looks like is it looks like laboring for Jesus. It's like working hard, but then being able to lay it down and rest. Being able to sleep at night. So my question is, like, how are you out of balance today? Are you out of balance? Like, you, you recognize the urgency of the kingdom, and you're, you're having trouble resting. You're having trouble putting down your burdens and trusting that Jesus is the Lord, and he will, he will work even while we sleep. Or is your balance the other end that you know that Jesus is sovereign, but there's not much urgency there? Understand where you are and seek repentance so we can live in balance of those two. So again, Jesus, the two first characteristics of authentic discipleship is that authentic discipleship is going to be costly and it's going to be a committed discipleship. But lastly, the last characteristic about authentic discipleship is that it is a joyful discipleship. Look at verses 17 to 24. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said, Privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and do not see it, and to hear what you hear and do not hear it. There's joy all over this passage. They return in joy. Jesus rejoices. Blessed are you. Again, the call to discipleship is not a call to drudgery, to just unwearying, aesthetic, self-whipping. There's great joy, and Jesus, once again, is our example as he rejoices in this text, or how Hebrews 12.2 says it, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Yes, there's going to be cost. Yes, there's total commitment. But there's also joy that comes with following our Lord. And there's two aspects to this joy that we see in our text this morning. The first is joy of spiritual power or the joy of being used by Christ. Look at verse 17. The 72, they come back after this intensive ministry. They're not like exhausted or like, um, this was terrible. They're rejoicing. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Disciples are trying to joy. There's, there's joy in being used by Jesus to see the kingdom advance, to see hearts go from darkness to light, from death to life. There's a common grace revelation that relationships are probably the most deeply meaningful part of our human existence. They're more important than the empires we build. They're more important than what we accomplish with our life. That's it. I mean, that's the whole point behind the, the Christmas classic. It's a wonderful life where George Bailey feels like he's a failure because he's working this two-bit, you know, lending institute. I don't even know what it is. They build houses for people. But he's living in rural Pennsylvania. No one knows who he is. He thinks he's a failure, but it ends... It says, no man is a failure who has friends because he had built relationships with people. And even though he was poor monetarily, in terms of what matters most, he was deeply rich as opposed to Mr. Potter who was the rich man in the movie, but he was impoverished in the way it matters most. We recognize relationships, that's, that's the wealth in our lives. How much more so Christ using us to reach people with the gospel? Friendships are meaningful. How much more so to be used by Christ to have children in the faith? People whom Christ and his mercy has used, broken vessels like us, to bring someone to life. There's no joy greater than that. There's an incredible joy to being used by Jesus to advance his kingdom, the joy of spiritual power. But second, and this is far more significant, let's just be honest, there's a joy of spiritual identity. There's a joy of being used by Christ, yes, but the far greater joy is the joy of belonging to Christ. Look at verse 20. And Jesus actually corrects his disciples. He says, yes, you should be right to rejoice that you are being used by the kingdom, but nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is an incredibly, incredibly important truth, a key truth that we have to take home with us, which is that our greatest joy is not being used by Christ, but it's belonging to Christ. That's why the New City Catechism, which we use here Sunday mornings, we recite together, which is actually following the Heidelberg Catechism, a much older catechism, it begins, it sets as a foundation for all the following Jesus this question and answer. I want you to repeat the answer with me. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Repeat this with me. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul 
both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the greatest joy of discipleship, that we belong to Jesus. When you get married and you stand at the altar and you're looking at your beloved, what is your greatest joy? It's not the flowers. They may be pretty. It's not your dress. If you're a woman, hopefully. It's not... Even family and friends being present, as meaningful as that can be, the greatest joy when you look at your beloved is knowing, I am yours and you are mine forever. That's the beauty of the wedding. That's why you're on cloud nine for that day. You're like, I can't believe it. For the rest of my life, I get to be yours and you get to be mine. And that's just a human. That's what's happening with Jesus, that we belong to him, body and soul. Nothing can separate us from him. Not our failures, not our weaknesses, not our sin, not a pandemic, nothing. We belong to him. He is ours and we are his forever. There is great joy in that. Psalm 16 says that your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's, that's what it means to belong to our Savior, Jesus. Nothing better than that. Yes, following Jesus is not a weekend gig, and so Jesus cautions would-be disciples, count the cost. Know what it's going to take to follow me. There's going to be a cost, and there's going to be a commitment, and these are not negotiable. And frankly, not everyone's going to be interested. Some are going to hear that and say, no, I'm out. But for those of us who do follow Jesus, we'll likely say something like the disciples said in John 6. They said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yes, there's cost to following Jesus. Yes, it requires total commitment and it may be difficult at times, but it's like, you're the Lord. Where else are we gonna go? And in his presence, there is the fullness of joy. Let's pray. Jesus, you've called us to be authentic disciples. People who truly follow after you, after the example you set of costly, committed, and joyful discipleship. Lord, help us to soberly count the cost because uh, give us eyes of faith to see that you are the Lord. And there is no cost too great that we could pay. There's no commitment that is too significant for the privilege of following you. Give us a, a taste of that joy this week, of the joy of belonging to you, our Savior, heart and soul. Help us to taste of that goodness and consider everything else. There's nothing in comparison to the joy of knowing you. I pray this in your faithful, in your beautiful name. Amen.